All right. Uh, if you guys want to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to be at verses 11 through 16 this morning. And just as we open up in a word of prayer before we get going, um, it was brought to my attention this morning that we know that there's tons of people that are being impacted by the fires in Maui, but there's a family uh, being directly impacted by those fires in our church body. Um, a family here, the Bidlers, Kara has family over there that are unaccounted for in the fire, um, as well as some friends of theirs that were a, a, a fire captain that they can't find as well. And so I just thought we'd take a moment as we lead into the service and just pray for their family and, um, and then ask the Lord to do his thing this morning. Jesus, we thank you uh, for this morning. We know that, uh, God, though we do not see the big picture in any of this, we trust that you do. We ask, God, for miracles to take place, for people to be found that are unaccounted for, for you to comfort and be with those who have lost loved ones in the midst of this or who have been devastated uh, by this disaster, God. I just pray that you would draw near, God. We pray for revival to break out on Maui as a result of this, God, where the things the enemy meant to steal, kill, and destroy, you would use to bring life and to bring life abundantly, God. And so we ask your spirit to work amongst the church and the believers there in Maui, Lord, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus during this season, to counsel and to comfort people, to provide food and shelter and friendship and companionship for those that need it right now. And I just thank you, Jesus, that we can trust you in the midst of all of these things that are taking place around the world. God, I pray for our time this morning that you would tune our ears to your word, God, that you would move amongst us, Lord. I pray for a softening of our hearts to hear from you, that our hearts would be um, like hearts of flesh, God. Would you begin to take those hearts of stone that exist in this room and the calluses that have built up and the walls that have been built up over the years, and I pray, Jesus, that you just soften us, Lord, that we could listen to you and that you would lead us in this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You guys all right? Take a deep breath. All right. Um, to start out this morning, uh, in 1989, there was an iconic movie that, that came out, uh, argu arguably one of the best films of Generation X, I think, um, or at least most notable. If you're a Gen X person in the room, say, what, what? There's only three of you, that's amazing. Uh, if you're in Gen X, you probably watched this film in a high school class setting. I did. Uh, any guesses as to what movie this would be? 1989, iconic films. Probably watched it in your school, anybody know? Anybody ever seen the movie Dead Poet Society? Uh, okay, man, that sounded like a big letdown. Um, <laughs> But this movie, Dead Poets Society, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Uh, but this movie, it, it, starts, um, it starts this Robin Williams, is, he's pretty young in this movie, and he plays this teacher, this unorthodox sort of English lit uh, professor at this all-boys school named John Keating uh, is his name. And uh, the teacher, the, John Keating, sort of aspires to show his, his students kind of a different way to approach literature and, and to life. And this movie is one of those movies, if you've seen it, that you watch and you feel instantly inspired. If you've seen this movie, it's just, there are one-liners and things in there that just feel so inspiring. Uh, it's a movie that makes you want to take risks. It's a movie that makes you like want to go out and just conquer the world and make something of yourself. 
And uh, that, that idea of just like conquering the world, making the most of your time is sort of summarized in one scene at the beginning of the movie where John Keating, this professor, takes his students out into the hallway, and you guys will remember this scene, uh, during their first class, and he has one of his students begin to read this poem, and he stops the student at a phrase that the, the student says in the midst of the poem. In Latin, this phrase is carpe diem, uh, which means seize the day. And this professor looks at his students and he says, why does the writer use these words? And, um, and the students are a little bit confused, and uh, he, he answers them and he says, because we're food for worms, lads. Because one day, believe it or not, all of us in this room will one day stop breathing, turn cold, and die. And, and then he, he, he says, look at this display case, and he shows them this display case, and there's all these accolades in this display case. There's pictures of old students and athletes that had accomplished a lot at the school. And he says to these students, these people in this case, these people were just like you. These people had aspirations, they had dreams, they were driven. Like, I want you to just take a look at them. And he points to these photos and he says, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. And he says, listen carefully, because if you listen careful enough, you can hear them whisper to you their legacy. And so he, he says, come near. And so like you see the kids kind of draw near to this display case. And then in a very, very creepy tone, uh, Robin Williams comes in behind them and he just goes, carpe, you know, and it's like super creepy. Uh, and the kids look at him kind of weird. And then he says, carpe diem. And, and so he starts to communicate this. And then he says, he leans behind him and he, he, again, he says, carpe diem, he says, seize the day. Make your lives extraordinary. And then there's this like total silence and all these students just sit there for a second and they stare at these pictures of these old students in this glass display case and they contemplate the weight of what was just said to them, the weight of the fact that they now have to make something of their lives. And then they're sort of just left with that, right? Uh, Dead Poet Society kind of made that phrase, coined it a bit, carpe diem, um, in our culture. And it's the reason we saw it on posters and coffee shops. There's even, if you grew up snowboarding, there was a big snowboard movie in the mid-90s uh, named Carpe Diem, and it just kind of made that phrase popular. Uh, and the, the reason it became so popular is not because it, it created this new idea. Like, it's an old concept, right? It, the phrase has been around forever. But it's because it resonated with, I, I think, a sentiment that's already alive and thriving in our culture as is in America. This whole idea that the only thing that you can be, uh, that you can be sure of in life, uh, the only thing that you can be sure of is, is the life that you live right now that it's that important. And so you better make this life count. And so you better fill it with everything that you possibly can because it's the only thing that you can actually be sure of. And, and so many people have been living with this idea of carpe diem all, ever since. Today we call this concept by different names. Like the millennial generation has lots of different ways to phrase the same things. They, think, they say things like, you do you, or you know, go get it, or, or YOLO, right? They're all different ways to phrase the same things, but there's hundreds of different versions of carpe diem that we hear throughout our culture today all of the time. And Christian or not, we're all actually living by the same underlying belief that you are only the sum of what you do. 
that it matters, what you do matters. You're, you're the sum of what you achieve. You're the sum of what you gather together for yourself in this life. And we're plagued by this in our culture. Like you hear, all to go spend some time on Instagram or TikTok um, or, or Facebook and all you see is lots of people posting things to try to get you to seize the day, to take advantage of this time now. And it's this whole idea that, that basically we're just food for worms, right? The, the, the only message on the other side of death is a message of warning and, and regret. And so we need to seize the day. And our culture lives with this sentiment sort of in the back of their heads because we fear that one day we'll just be fertilizing daffodils. Like that's the extent of our life. And we want to make our life matter more than that. But if this whole philosophy, and I promise I'll get to the text in a few, but if this whole philosophy of carpe diem really worked, in some ways, don't you think that our culture would be a whole lot happier than it actually is? A whole lot more content or joy-filled than it actually is? Do you think that we'd be more satisfied than we actually are? Because here's the thing, is that we have more wealth, we have more time, we have more technology, we have more experiences, we have more options, we have more square footage, we have more opportunities, choices, flavors than any time in human history right now. But yet as a society, we're more anxious, we're more depressed, we're more divided, alone, dissatisfied than any generation in human history. I read this article in the Harvard Business, the Harvard Business Review and they did this study a couple of years ago and found that 50% of millennials between the ages of 25 and 40 left a recent job due to anxiety. For Gen Z, ages 18 to 24, that number goes to 75%. And what they found was that in the last 50 years, there's been this increasing expectation that each generation has to one-up the last generation. And so that pressure that continues to build generation after generation feels insurmountable for the generations. And so these stats, again, have been increasing over a 50-year period. And so it begs the question, what's gone wrong in our culture to bring this about? That we, we, we say we want to seize the day, but actually we're more stressed out than we've ever been. And, and we thought that this concept of seizing the day was so good and something just isn't working. And then we come to a passage like we'll be in this morning, and we see this old wise pastor named Paul writing to this young pastor named Timothy to give him some encouragement. And I think it's the correction that you and I need to be able to see this, the, to, to see life the right way and to pursue the right kinds of things in the right way. He starts off in 1 Timothy 6, 11, and he says this. He says, but as for you, O man of God, Flee these things, is how he kicks it off. And so I want to stop right there for a second. As for you, man of God, flee these things. In last week's text, Paul was giving Timothy this warning about false teachers and those that are causing division and those that are pursuing wealth and those that are pursuing their own gain and those that are pursuing God and trying to use God and his people to make their lives count and sort of to seize the day. And then Paul says to Timothy in the midst of this, you, O oh man of God, are called to something different, that you're called to a different way. And he starts it with this, flee, fleeing. And Paul calls him to a life that begins with fleeing all of those things, all of the things that will lead to destruction, the sins, the vices. And this is just the beginning of Paul's commands. Paul gives four of these commands. He says, flee, pursue, fight, and take hold are the things that he communicates. I'll come back to those in a second. 
But this whole charge to flee that, he, that he's giving Timothy is not like this soft or this gentle suggestion that he's giving him. If someone was in a burning building and you, tried, uh, you were trying to get them to get out of the building, you wouldn't go to the person and say, hey man, uh, the building's on fire. You'd say, Dude, the building is on fire. It's going to collapse down on top of you. You need to get the heck out of here. Like there would be an emphatic uh, 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 sort of tone in your voice to get the person out of the building. And I think he's looking at Timothy and he's saying, flee. Like don't have anything to do with the things that they are enthralled with. Run. Get as far possible away from those things that are going to destroy those people because those things will destroy you if you continue to participate in them as well. But Paul doesn't stop with fleeing. If you look at the passage, he keeps going. He says, flee these things. And then in the next line, he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. See, because Paul knows that when God calls us, God doesn't just say, move away from these things over there. And I don't know if you grew up in the 90s in sort of evangelical Christian circles, there was a lot of don't do these things. Anybody have a CD burning party in the 90s when you gave your life to Jesus because you couldn't listen to secular music anymore? Okay, so what did they encourage you to do? Burn your Christian CDs, or burn your secular CDs. Maybe some of you burn your Christian CDs. Burn your secular CDs and find the Christian band that sounds just like the secular one that you liked. And if you were in the Christian bookstores in the 90s, they often posted posters on the wall that said, sounds like. Pearl Jam, you know, you're like, oh, that's so weird. And, and so, but what we did a lot of was telling people to stop. Burn those secular sins, just stop sin, stop it. And what you see in texts like this is that there's more to it than just stop doing it. Like God's actually calling you to something. This is the amazing part about Jesus. It's not about fleeing it's about walking towards something, pursuing something else. There's a better thing that God is offering us. So Paul doesn't just tell Timothy to stop. He tells Timothy what it is that he's to run towards. Righteousness and godliness. These things go together. Like that's how we live before God and we live before others. And then faith and love. Like these are Paul's two favorite things to call Christians to. They're also foundational of the Christian life and everything that Jesus taught. And then he says steadfastness and gentleness. Like these are the, this is the demeanor of God's people. These are the things that we're to run after. It's, it's a life of deep character that God is calling us to. That, and what he's calling Timothy to, instead of everything that these other false teachers are pursuing that Paul is challenging, there's something more and then Paul's still not done. He doesn't just finish by saying flee and pursue. He keeps going. He says flee, pursue. And then in verse 12, he says this, fight the good fight of faith. And what I think Paul is saying is that he starts with fleeing. He says there's all these things that you need to get away from. Don't replicate what it is you see all these other people doing. And then he says to pursue all of this stuff over here. This is the life that you've been called to, Timothy. And when we stand in the middle of these two things, between fleeing and pursuit, what do we often find in the middle? Tension. 
The fight is taking place between fleeing and pursuing. There's a fight. When we stand in the middle of, of who we were and who it is we're becoming, there's a fight that's taking place. And the word that Paul uses for fight in the Greek is, is agonizomai. And this word, if we think of the, the English word agonize, this is what he's referring to. It's this intense struggle. It's an agonizing struggle, a wrestling that we do when we're trying to fight between these two things, between fleeing who we were and pursuing who it is that God is calling us to be. We flee and pursue. And this is why, what he's calling Timothy to. And it's because he knows that when we're standing in between these two things and we're trying to live this way, there is literally this war that is being waged because there are forces at play that are trying to stop you from pursuing, trying to stop you from running towards God. Traditionally, these forces, they're called the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is how the New Testament defines them for us. And I can guarantee you that all three of these are trying to make sure that you don't pursue God. That is the goal that you don't get to him, that you don't even move in that direction, that, that you stay firmly planted in all the stuff that Paul's timid, char, uh, Paul is charging Timothy to stay away from, that you stay planted in those things. There's forces that want to keep you there. And this world we know will lead us astray. Your flesh will betray you and the devil just makes you think that nothing's wrong at all. And Paul says that we're waging war against those things. That, that it's a fight that we have to engage in. And so for Paul, this means as Christ followers that we're actually called to fight. That it's not gonna be a cakewalk, that it's difficult. And all of these things aren't just gonna happen for you. It's a fight, it's a wrestling, there's tension, it's a striving after something that we've been called to. And what this means is that effort isn't wrong. And I think in the Christian church, we've just deemed like it, it's all what God is doing. It's all for him. And so he's the one that's done it all. I don't have to do anything. And so we minimize effort in the church. Like we're not supposed to work towards anything. We just sit there and take it. But God is literally, or Paul is literally saying to Timothy, flee from something. And there's these characteristics, these things that you need to pursue. You need to do something about it. And when it comes to carpe diem, this whole idea of seizing the day, the problem with carpe diem isn't the seize part. Because all of life requires effort, and the Christian life is no different than that. But the problem is the day part, if you think about it, right? The problem is this concept of a life that's found in the day. Like it's just simply too shallow that life would be found in one day. Like it's too nearsighted to actually satisfy or be of any value when it becomes about a day. And this is why when, when we hear that we're just food for worms, you and I, like, we kind of try to pump ourselves up and get hyped up and on board with this thought. I need to take advantage of this day because I just don't want to be food for worms. I want my life to count. But then there's something inside of us that kind of objects to this idea and knows that it doesn't feel right, that it's not working. And there has to be more than this. And what we start to feel in the midst of that tension and that fight is exactly what Paul goes on to say in verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
What Paul's suggesting is that the reason that you fight is not to seize the day. The reason that we fight and that we engage in this place of tension in the middle is to move towards pursuit because on the other side of that is what? Eternal life. On the other side of pursuit is eternal life. This is where true life is found. And so he says that this is, that there's something that is worth fleeing. There's something that's worth fighting for. There's something that is worth pursuing. Because we were made for something far greater than just one day. There's something more for you. We're not meant to just seize the day. We're meant to take hold of eternal life. And the thing that he's trying to tell us right here is not that we're just supposed to fight, but what is it that you are actually fighting for? You're fighting for eternal life because that's worth the fight. And if all we ever, uh, if all we think about when we hear eternal life is what we get in heaven when we die, which is what I think a lot of Christians are guilty of. I wanna get saved because I wanna be protected in the end. And so our lives all become about salvation, which is great. I'm not minimizing salvation, but it all becomes about what we get in the end, not necessarily contemplating what you get right now. And I think what Paul's charging Timothy is like, this is about something much bigger than you see at play. For you and I, this isn't just about you taking hold of Jesus so that you can get a fast track to heaven. This is actually taking hold of Jesus because we're promised that heaven comes to earth right now through Christ. That God sent his son Jesus to this earth to give us a glimpse of heaven, that we step into that right now. That it isn't just eternal life, long term, it's actually real life right now that you get to step into. It's not just the future, it's today. Pastor John Orberg said this about eternal life. He said, eternal life isn't just about the future, we can have it now. It's not just about there, we can have it here. Most important, it's not something we simply receive through a transaction that arranges for our future destination. It's something we experience now through becoming Jesus' disciples, which death is then unable to stop. I should hear a massive amen. Eternal life is something we experience now through becoming Jesus' disciples, which de death is then unable to stop. And we know this is true because Jesus himself actually defines eternal life for us in John 13, 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they know me, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is why we keep talking about knowing Jesus, because that's life. It's true life. It's real life. It's eternal life. Eternal life is found in Christ, knowing him, abiding in him, pursuing him, fighting to flee these things and run the direction of Jesus in the life that he's called you to instead of settling where everybody else does. And this is how we actually take hold of it. And so here's the thing, is that the gospel, the message that Jesus came to preach, his message wasn't, hey, I'm here so that you can get to heaven when you die. That wasn't Christ's message. His message was heaven has actually come to you. Jesus, God in the flesh, when he shows up, that was eternity breaking into creation to bring life to each and every one of us that would call upon his name. And it's this invitation to come step in and to take hold of the life that he's granted us. But we have to believe this enough to actually take hold of it. Not just confess it with our mouths, which is where I think we've often kind of left it. 
But to have faith and to confess it or to act it out is to actually take hold of it, to fight, to be willing to stand in the tension of these two things so that we can take hold of the life that God has called us to, the life that we long for, that our souls long for, the life that we're searching for. We have to actually fight for it. And it's been made available to us. It's right here now. You have to take hold of it and make it your own. And that's kind of how the language works here. But if you go on believing that the gospel is just about going to heaven when we die and managing your sin in the meantime, and in every other way trying to seize the day, like everybody else is, then you will remain unsatisfied on this earth. We'll be left standing there wondering, why do people seem to experience so Jesus so differently than I do? And it's because of this. It's because they've been willing to take up the fight. They've been willing to pursue Jesus with everything that he has for them because Paul says true life is worth fighting for. And so fight for it. Pursue these things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And so when we find ourselves spiritually immobile and just sitting in the middle in our life and just kind of stagnant, this is like when Jesus says we can't serve two masters. That it's not possible to serve both sides. We can't try to hold on to this carpe diem mentality and, and trying to squeeze everything out of life to make it count for something by just gathering up stuff and experiences, which is what our American culture is so good at. It doesn't work. And if you sit and you try to stand in the middle, you're going to fall towards everything that will destroy you. Like if the goal is to just stay stagnant in the middle, you'll fall away. And so Paul says, run hard in the direction of the life that you're called to and experience it. And the problem is that we often sit in the middle. We, we sort of sit in this neutral ground because we kind of want both sides a little bit in our life, don't we? There's a part of us right now today, me, myself, that we want the things that we're fleeing from, but I also want what God offers me if I pursue him. And so we sit in this middle ground in our life. Like, I don't want to let go of anything because, uh, because I like some of that stuff. <laughs> but I also want what God has for me. And I'm not necessarily willing to let go of it all to pursue him 100%. So how can I just find the middle ground? And I want to challenge you this morning. Sitting at that place in life is sort of like me asking my wife, how many times can I cheat on you and still stay married? How many times can I just continue to offend and offend and offend and still stay married to you? And it's just, it sounds like a crazy question to ask, but this is where we often position ourselves as believers. I don't want to let go of anything, but I do want everything that he's offering me if I pursue him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Paul says, that's not the right question to ask. The question is, what does it take for you to fight and to run in the direction that he's asking you to go? That's what you were called to. That's what leads to real life. And it's ironic because even Timothy, who Paul's writing this to, needed this reminder a lot. If you read 2 Timothy, which we'll get to in the next couple of weeks, Paul gives him the exact same reminder again because even Timothy felt this tension. Timothy wanted to pursue the things that he was supposed to, but he also felt the tension of wanting the stuff that he was supposed to flee from, and that's just no different than you and I. The Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this. He said, a saint is someone who can will the one thing. 
The one thing being God, his will, his heart, his kingdom, being able to will that in all things. And the problem is, is we like that idea, but Ronald Rawheiser says this, he says, we wanna be a saint, but we also wanna feel every sensation experienced by sinners. We wanna be innocent and pure, but we also wanna be experienced and taste all of life. We wanna serve the poor and have a simple lifestyle, but we also want all the comforts of the rich. We wanna have the depth afforded by solitude, but we also don't wanna miss anything. We wanna pray, but we also want to watch television, read, talk to our friends, and go out. This odd tension that we live in. And we're stuck in the middle in this tension. And our struggle, and I'd argue maybe our biggest issue in that, is with believing what we actually confess. Because we're not sure. We're not sure if we really believe that eternal life is better than all the stuff that the world has to offer us. We're not sure. And so we'll forever be stuck in the middle of that. But Paul says, there's more for you if you would just run that way. And so if we're willing to face the tension, if we're actually willing to fight, then, then, then the, the more that we're all meant for will be ours. And now, not just now, but actually for all of eternity. And true life is worth fighting for. If you look at the rest of verse 12, he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so Paul hints at this idea that the eternal life that you're to take hold of, that you're actually called to, that, that whole idea of being called uh, in the original language actually means promised, meaning that this life is promised to you. It's promised to all those who would believe in Jesus that God dealt with your sin, that God has literally rescued you, that he's saved you, that he's pulled you in, that he's welcomed you into the family, into the kingdom right here and right now. And he says, do you know who promised that to you? Is what Paul's asking. Verse 13 and 14, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So eternal life, true life, has been promised to each of us. All those who would believe in Jesus by the author and the creator, the giver of all life. And so listen to this. It's just what he does. It's what he does. It's in his character and his nature. And he's done it all through Jesus, the only one to ever truly will the one thing. The, the one who is the ultimate example of righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. And it was in pursuing, in willing that one thing that Jesus in agony goes to the cross and on the cross he wages this war against the world, against the flesh, against the devil, and he conquers them all and he brings new life. He brings real life, true life for everyone that would believe in him. And so he brings us back to that life that we were created for. And it's this opportunity for us to be resurrected with him. It's an opportunity for us to be given new life. And this means that on the other side of death isn't just merely a message of regret and warning for us. It means that on the other side of the grave, there's this message of life that is unending, that it's found with Jesus, and that it begins for you today. See, the, the message isn't that you're food for worms, and so you need to seize the day. The message is, as Dallas Willard says, that we are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. 
that every one of us is this unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's universe. And on the other side of the grave is this message of life unending. And so now, Jesus Christ, God in human form, the ultimate picture of righteousness and godliness and everything that Paul's talking about, invites all of us to a real life. That if we're willing to count the cost, that it'll consume your entire life. That it'll be a fight, that it'll be a struggle. But if we're willing to pursue it, that if we're willing to put a little bit of, for, of effort forward by his spirit, that he'll actually enable us and empower us to do whatever it takes to follow after him. And we'll find ourselves living the life of eternity for now and all time with Jesus. And so here's the thing. Somewhere in there, there's this little blip called death. And the reality is that we will hardly even feel it as we step into the fullness of life that you begin with Jesus by walking with him today. That death has no sting. And so the next time your marriage gets tough and you just want to call it quits, you remember that there's more for you. There's more. That, that true life is actually worth fighting for. Or as you begin thinking about retirement and putting your feet up, remember that the call to fight actually never ends. It's, it's ongoing. It may look different from season to season in your life, but never think that you're actually done because you fight until the very end, until the day we die or Jesus comes back for us because that's the way to life. And so the next time you contemplate cheating, you contemplate stealing, you contemplate throwing a coworker or a friend under the bus so that you can get, get ahead, you remember that there's a different way that God is offering us, a better way, and that true life is worth fighting for. Or, or maybe the next time you want, your anger gets the best of you and you see red and you just want to start yelling at people, yelling at your friends and family, remember that there's a different way that we're called to. He says it's faith, love, and gentleness. Or maybe somebody in here is just contemplating calling it quits altogether. Remember that Jesus stands before you and he stands here offering you true life and it's worth fighting for. So take hold in every moment of every day, but you have to choose it. I can't say that enough. You choose it in the little moments of faith every single day of your life. But he's so much better than what the world has to offer us, isn't he? So much better than everything bound up in this idea of seizing the day, like making the most out of my day in this time. He's so much bigger and better than that. There's eternal life for all of us and it's been promised to us by God who is the giver of life. And so he's the giver of life, but Paul says, and I'll end with this, verses 15 and 16. He says that he also is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And that's the God that we belong to in Jesus. I'm going to have the worship team come up. But this is how he ends it to Timothy. And in Timothy's day, I want you to understand there's no shortage of other little gods to follow during, during Timothy's time. There's Mammon, like the god of money. There's this god Artemis. There's Caesar, um, who they were actually called to worship and to sacrifice for. There's all these other gods. And so in the face of all these cultural tensions, all these other little g gods and temptations and these powers and these forces, this is Paul's charge to Timothy in the midst of that. 
to keep fighting. And so Paul's encouragement to Timothy and to you and I in the face of those things is that you aren't mastered by those gods. You aren't. You are not mastered by, they do not own you. You aren't mastered by those things. And I think that we need to hear that for a minute. That the only way that we'll be safe in the fight is if we belong to the God who gives us life. The God above everything. And that means that for each of us, we're not mastered by our idols of image, that, that we're not mastered by idols of what other people think of us, that we're not mastered by our past, that we're not owned by any other person, we're not owned by any other system or God other than the God of the universe, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And so you and I are safe in the fight because he is the one that rules on the throne. He has dominion over all these things. And we can continue on because true life is worth fighting for. And it's all because of Jesus who said he came to give life. And he said he came to give life to the full, give life in abundance. And he's the one who fought. He's the one who died to give you and I eternal life. And as Jesus hung on that cross, what did he say? It is finished. True life is actually worth fighting for. And so this morning... I want to end our time a little bit different. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to sing in a few. You can stand now. But as I was contemplating this this morning, I just felt led to end our time praying for many of you that find yourselves in the midst of this tension. You want so badly what God has to offer you, but you don't want to let go of the things he's asking you to flee from. And so you're caught in this tension between fleeing and pursuing. You're in the fight right now. And in a minute after I pray, I want to invite some of you this forward this morning to receive prayer. And as some of you come forward, this was sort of my thought, was I want you to think of this act of even coming forward very practically as this initial first step in pursuit. Like, I won't sit here. I'm going to do something about it. Every week we have this prayer team up here and we say, if you have anything going on in your life, anything you need prayer for, come forward and receive prayer. And it's so interesting that a couple people will come forward and then my phone will blow up all week with everything going on in their life and the lives of people. And I think to myself, like, there's more going on here than we want to admit. Sometimes our pride and our arrogance will not let us take the first step towards pursuit so we'll just settle in the middle. And for some of you this morning, like you're in the midst of some seasons, some issues in your life that have your insides just in knots. Have you questioning who's God? How can he be involved in my life when this X is happening in my life or whatever it is? Where's he at in the midst of this? Why am I dealing with this sickness or this pain or this, remote, this emotional issue or this relational issue in my life? And this morning, I simply want us to be the church. If we believe it goes further than confession, that there's action that needs to be taken, then what we believe that, yes, we confess with our mouths, but we also are going to take a step to say, I'm going to do something about it. And I've invited the prayer team up here, our staff, whoever needs to be available will be available. 
But my ask to you this morning is if you find yourself in this middle ground, in the fight, and in fact, maybe even leaning more towards the fleeing side, like you just aren't winning. I wanna pray for you this morning. Because I believe at the end of the day, the fight is good and he's called us to it, but the fight is moving us towards something. And the fight we don't just exist in in this life so that we can eventually be with Jesus in heaven. You exist in the fight now because we trust that he's in it with us, isn't he? that his spirit is actually working in us and through us in the midst of the fight, that it's leading us somewhere, you guys. And somebody just told me yesterday, I was like talking to a friend of mine. He said I was with my counselor. My counselor told me that 70% of marriages in the church are ending in divorce right now. Um, and that it's just going downhill. And I thought, okay, there's a fight. There's a battle that's been waged over your souls, over your relationships, over your minds. And you can settle into it and just kind of try to cruise by this life and wait for your path to heaven. But God's offered you so much more, so much more, abundant life now that you can receive. That doesn't mean perfection, it doesn't mean all the pain is gone, but what it means is that there's somebody else in it with you comforting you, standing with you, getting you through the fight so that you can continue to move in pursuit of eternal life. I want you to read those words in this passage again. Flee. Fight. Take hold. Them seem like fighting words, don't they? <laughs> Action words. Some of you need to make a deliberate decision this morning to move towards Jesus. You've been camping out on the fringe for a long time. And Jesus is calling you to move towards him, to stop looking to Jesus as merely your get out of free card, or get out of hell free card, but start taking hold of eternity now. Would you bow your heads with me? things with your heads bowed. One of the things that I love is hearing the stories of other people that come to me and talk to me about what this fight looks like in their life. And um, they're encouraging for me to continue the fight when I hear other people's stories of how they're engaged. And one of the reasons that we need to hear each other's stories of how others are engaging this fight is that we need to hear from those who stood up and said, it's worth it to run and to fight in this direction. I've had conversations with people who's struggled with same-sex attraction. And listening to people talk to you about the fact that they're choosing to not give in, they know that they're more than their sexuality in Jesus. And they wanna live a life in pursuit in him and trust and believe that God has more for them. Those are amazing stories. Or those who have traumatic church experiences and in the past they've been hurt, but they're still here. Like I love those stories where they're like, I have every reason to leave because I've seen the worst of it all. And I'll tell you in my 25 years of being in ministry, I've seen behind the curtain the way the 
cookies are made, and uh, I have every reason to bounce myself. But there's something about those that continue to stay, those that continue to immerse themselves in community and realize they're not defined by their traumatic experiences. God's calling you to something much greater, much bigger. There's some in this room that are struggling with anxiety and depression, and you're continuing to choose to pursue Jesus as though he's the only relief from your pain. When everybody else is getting up, it would be easier to just put it all aside, but they're choosing not to. And I love those testimonies. I wanna pray for those of you in the room that are struggling with any of these things where this morning, may you be encouraged that there are those in the fight that are choosing to continue to pursue and not settle. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I just thank you for each soul represented in this room. I thank you for the work that you've accomplished through Jesus on that cross that has given us not just eternal life, like a final destination, but a life to live now, that though we are engaged in the fight, we find peace and contentment. We find the ability to have steadfastness and to be gentle. And I pray, Jesus, that right now, those in this room that are really struggling, that you'd be tugging on their hearts, calling them forth to flee and not to just leave and walk away from their past, but to actually run to you, Jesus. And so I pray this morning, God, that you'd have your way in your church as we open up our hearts to you and we just pour out our hearts and we ask, Jesus, you know the deepest hurts, you know the things we're wrestling with and dealing with, you know where we're at in the fight, you also know, Jesus, what it's like for us to pursue you and I pray, Jesus, that you would lead us, that you would guide us that you would show us a glimpse of the life that you're offering us that is far greater than anything that this world tries to throw at us and get us to believe that we can just seize the day ourselves and make this life worth it. That only happens in you, Jesus. So I pray your blessing upon each person in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. As we step into a time of worship during the song, I just encourage you, if you're here this morning and God's leading you to come forward, those up here that will pray for you and more will come to pray for you but let this just be an opportunity for this morning for the church to be the church as you begin to flee and leave and walk towards Jesus may this be your first step this morning as I know God is doing some things in several of your lives right now as we pray so feel free to come forward